Hello, and welcome back. This is Russ Johnson. I want to take a quick second to thank everybody who has taken the time to reach out and send me an email or send me a voice message through Anchor. Uh, They mean so much to me. I love hearing your feedback about the stories. Makes my day, and I do respond to everyone you guys send. Well, now we continue on with the fifth book in the Legend of Drizzt series and the second book in the Icewind Dale trilogy, The Streams of Silver. When last we left our intrepid adventurers, they had successfully defeated the tyrant Akar Kessel and the Crystal Shard, and they've now set out on a journey to find the fabled Mithril Hall. So, without further discussion, let's dive right in. Streams of Silver We've dug our holes and hallowed caves, put goblin foes in shallow graves. This day our work is just begun, in the mines where silver rivers run. Beneath the stone the metal gleams, torches shine on silver streams. Beyond the eyes of the spying sun, in the mines where silver rivers run. The hammers chime on mithril pure, as dwarven mines in days of yore. A craftsman's work is never done in the mines where silver rivers run. To dwarven gods we sing our praise. Put another orc in a shallow grave. We know our work has just begun in the land where silver rivers run. Prelude On a dark throne in a dark place perched the dragon of shadow. Not a very large worm, but foulest of the fowl, its mere presence, blackness, its talons, swords worn from a thousand, thousand kills, its maw ever warm with the blood of victims, its black breath, despair. A raven's coat was its tested scales, so rich in their blackness that they shimmered in colors, a scintillating facade of beauty for a soulless monster. Its minions named it Shimmergloom and paid it all honor, gathering its strength over the course of centuries as dragons do. Shimmergloom kept its wings folded back and moved not at all, except to swallow a sacrifice or to punish an insolent underling. It had done its part to secure this place, routing the bulk of the dwarven army that stood to face its allies. How well the dragon had eaten that day, The hides of dwarves were tough and muscled, but a razor-toothed maw was well-suited to such a meal. And now the dragon's many slaves did all the work, bringing it food and heeding to its every desire. The day would come when they would need the power of the dragon again, and Shimmer Gloom would be ready. The huge mound of plundered treasures beneath it fueled the dragon's strength, and in this respect... Shimmergloom was surpassed by none of its kind, possessing a horde beyond the imagination of the richest kings, and a host of loyal minions, willing slaves to the Dragon of Darkness. The chill wind that gave Icewind Dale its name whistled across their ears, its incessant groan eliminating the casual conversations the four friends usually enjoyed. They moved west across the barren tundra, and the wind, as always, came from the east, behind them, quickening their already strong pace. 
Their posture and the determination drive of their strides reflected the eagerness of a newly begun quest. But the set of each adventurer's face revealed a different perspective of the journey. The dwarf, Brunner Battlehammer, leaning forward from his waist, his stocky legs pumping mightily beneath him, and his pointed nose poking out above the shag of his wagging red beard, led the way. He seemed set in stone, apart from his legs and beard, with his mini-notched axe held firmly before him in his gnarled hands, his shield emblazoned with the standard of the foaming mug strapped tightly on the back of his overstuffed pack, and his head, adorned in a mini-dented horned helm, never turning to either side. Neither did his eyes deviate from the path, and rarely did they blink. Brunner had initiated this journey to find the ancient homeland of Clan Battlehammer, and though he fully realized that the silvery halls of his childhood were hundreds of miles away, he stomped along with the fervor of one whose long-awaited goal is clearly in sight. Beside Brunner, the huge barbarian, too, was anxious. Wolfgar lopped along smoothly, the great strides of his long legs easily matching the dwarf's rolling pace. There was a sense of urgency about him, like a spirited horse on short rein. Fires, hungry for adventure, burned in his pale eyes as clearly as in Brunner's, but unlike the dwarf, Wolfgar's gaze was not fixed upon the straight road before him. He was a young man, out to view the wide world for the first time, and he continually looked about, soaking up every sight and sensation that the landscape had to offer. He had come along to aid his friends on their adventure, but he had come as well to expand the horizons of his own world. The entirety of his young life had been spent within the isolating natural boundaries of Icewind Dale, limiting his experiences to ancient ways of his fellow barbarian tribesmen and the frontier peoples of Ten Towns. There was more out there. Wolfgar knew this, and he was determined to grasp as much of it as he possibly could. Less interested was Driz Duarden, the cloaked figure trotting beside Wolfgar. His floating gait showed him to be of elven heritage, but the shadows of his low-pulled cowl suggested something else. Drizzt was a drow, a black elf, denizen of the lightless Underdark. He'd spent several years on the surface, denying his heritage, yet he found that he could not escape the aversion to the sun inherent to his people. And so he sunk low within the shadow of his cowl, his stride nonchalant ever resigned, this trip being merely a continuation of his existence, another adventure in a lifelong string of adventures. Forsaking his people in the dark city of Menzoberranzan, Drizduarden had willingly embarked upon the road of the nomad. He knew that he would never truly be accepted anywhere on the surface. Perceptions of his people were too vile, and rightly so, for even the most tolerant of communities to take him in. The road was his new home, he was always traveling to avoid the inevitable heartache of being forced from a place that he might have come to love. Ten Towns had been a temporary sanctuary. The forlorn wilderness settlement housed a large population of rogues and outcasts, and though Drizzt wasn't openly welcomed, his hard-earned reputation as a guardian of the town's border had granted him a small measure of respect and tolerance from many of the settlers. Brunner named him a true friend, though, and Drizzt had willingly set out beside the dwarf on the trek— Despite his apprehension that once had moved out beyond the influence of his reputation, the treatment he received would be less than civil. Every so often, Driz dropped back the dozen yards or so to check on the fourth member of the party. Huffing and puffing, 
Regis the halfling brought up the rear of the troop, and not by choice. With a belly too round for the road, and legs too short to match the pumping strides of the dwarf. Paying now for the months of luxury he had enjoyed in the palatial house in Bryn Shander, Regis cursed the turn of luck that had forced him into the road. His greatest love was comfort, and he worked at perfecting the art of eating and sleeping as diligently as a young lad with dreams of heroic deeds swung his first sword. His friends were truly surprised when he joined them on the road, but they were happy to have him along and even Brunner, so desperate to see his ancient homeland again, took care not to set the pace too far beyond Regis's ability to keep up. Certainly Regis pushed himself to his physical limits, and without his customary complaining. Unlike his companions, those whose eyes looked to the road up ahead, he kept glancing back over his shoulder, back toward Ten Towns and the home he had so mysteriously abandoned to join the journey. Drizzt noted this with some concern. Regis was running away from something. The companions kept their westerly course for several days. To their south, the snow-capped peaks of the jagged mountains, the spine of the world, paralleled their journey. This range marked the southern boundary to Icewind Dale, and the companions kept an eye out for its end. When the westernmost peaks died away to flat ground, they would have turned south, down the pass between the mountains and the sea, running out to the dale altogether and down the last hundred-mile stretch to the coastal city of Luskin. Out on the trail, each morning before the sun rose at their backs, they continued running into the last pink lines of sunset, stopping to make camp at the very last opportunity before the chill wind took on its icy nighttime demeanor. Then they were back on the trail again before dawn, each running within the solitude of his own perspective and fears. A silent journey, save the endless murmur, of the eastern wind. Book One Searches I pray that the world will never run out of dragons. I say that in all sincerity, though I have played a part in the death of one great worm. For the dragon is the quintessential enemy, the greatest foe, the unconquerable epitome of devastation. The dragon, above all other creatures, even the demons and devils, evoke images of dark grandeur of the greatest beast curled asleep on the greatest treasure hoard. They are the ultimate test of the hero and the ultimate fright of the child. They are older than the elves and more akin to the earth than the dwarves. The great dragons are the pre-natural beasts, the basic element of the beast, the darkest part of our imagination. The wizards cannot tell you their origin, though they believe that a great wizard, a god of wizards, must have played some role in the first spawning of the beast. The elves, with their long fables explaining the creation of every aspect of the world, have many ancient tales concerning the origin of the dragons, but they admit, privately, that they really have no idea of how the dragons came to be. My own belief is more simple and yet more complicated by far. I believe that dragons appeared in the world immediately after the spawning of the first reasoning race. I do not credit any god or wizards with their creation, but rather the most basic imagination wrought of unseen fears of these first reasoning mortals. We make the dragons as we make the gods because we need them, because somewhere deep in our hearts we recognize that a world without them is a world not worth living in. There are so many people in the land who want an answer, a definitive answer for everything in life, 
and even for everything after life. They study and they test. And because those few find the answers for some simple questions, they assume that there are answers to be had for every question. What was the world like before there were people? Was there nothing but darkness before the sun and stars? Was there anything at all? What were we, each of us, before we were born? And what, most importantly of all, shall we be after we die? Out of compassion, I hope that these questioners never find that which they seek. One self-proclaimed prophet came through ten towns denying the possibility of an afterlife, claiming that those people who had died and were raised by priests had in fact never died, and that their claims of experiences beyond the grave were an elaborate trick played on them by their own hearts, a ruse to erase the path of nothingness. For that is all there was, he said, an emptiness, a nothingness. Never in my life have I ever heard one begging so desperately for someone to prove him wrong. For what are we left with if there remains no mystery? What hope might we find if we know all the answers? What is it within us, then, that so desperately wants to deny magic and to unravel mystery? Fear, I presume, based on the many uncertainties of life and the greatest uncertainty of death. Put those fears aside, I say, and live free of them. For if we just step back and watch the truth of the world, we will find that there is indeed magic all about us, unexplainable by numbers and formulas. What is the passion evoked by the stirring speeches of the commander before the deepest battle, if not magic? What is the peace that an infant might know in his mother's arms, if not magic? What is love, if not magic? No, I would not want to live in a world without dragons, as I would not want to live in a world without magic, for that is a world without mystery, and that is a world without faith. And that, I fear, for any reasoning conscious being, would be the cruelest trick of all. Drizzt to Arden. Chapter 1. A Dagger at Their Backs He kept his cloak pulled tightly about him, though little light seeped in through the curtain windows, for this was his existence, secretive and alone the way of the assassin. While other people went about their lives basking in the pleasures of the sunlight and the welcome visibility of their neighbors, Artemis and Trary kept to the shadows, the dilated orbs of his eyes focused on the narrow path he must take to accomplish his latest mission. He truly was a professional, possibly the finest in the entire realms at his dark craft, and when he sniffed out the trail of his prey, the victim never escaped. So the assassin was unbothered by the empty house that he found in Bryn Shander, the principal city of the ten settlements in the wasteland of Icewind Dale. And Trary had suspected that the halfling had slipped out of ten towns. But no matter. If this was indeed the same halfling that he had sought all the way from Calimport, a thousand miles or more to the south, he had made better progress than he would have ever hoped. His mark had no more than a two-week head start, and the trail would be fresh indeed. And Trary moved through the house silently and calmly, seeking hints of the halfling's life here that would give him the edge in their inevitable confrontation. Clutter greeted him in every room. The halfling had left in a hurry, probably aware that the assassin was closing in. And Trary considered this a good sign, 
further heightening his suspicions that this halfling, Regis, was the same Regis who had served the Pasha Pook those years ago in the distant southern city. The assassin smiled evilly at the thought that the halfling knew he was being stalked, adding to the challenge of the hunt as Entreri pitted his stalking prowess against his intended victim's hiding ability. But the end result was predictable, Entreri knew, for a frightened person invariably made a fatal mistake. The assassin found what he was looking for in a desk drawer in the master bedroom. Fleeing in haste, Regis had neglected to take precautions to conceal his true identity. Entreri held the small ring up before his gleaming eyes, studying the inscription that clearly identified Regis as a member of Pasha Pook's Thieves' Guild in Kalimport. Entreri closed his fist about the signet, the evil smile widening across his face. "'I have found you, little thief,' he laughed into the emptiness of the room. "'Your fate is sealed. There is nowhere for you to run.' His expression changed abruptly to one of alertness as the sound of a key in the palatial house's front door echoed up the entryway of the grand staircase. He dropped the ring into his belt pouch and slipped as silent as death to the shadows of the top posts of the stairway's heavy banister. The large double doors swung open, and a man and a young woman stepped in from the porch ahead of two dwarves. Entreri knew the man, Cassius, the spokesman of Bryn Shander. This had been his home once— but he had relinquished it several months earlier to Regis, after the halfling's heroic actions in the town's battle against the evil wizard Akar Kessel and his goblin minions. And Drury had seen the other human before as well, though he hadn't yet discovered her connection to Regis. Beautiful women were a rarity in this remote setting, and this young woman was indeed the exception. Shiny auburn locks danced gaily about her shoulders, the intense sparkle of her dark blue eyes enough to bind any man hopelessly within their depths. Her name, the assassin had learned, was Caterbury. She lived with the dwarves in their valley north of the city, particularly with the leader of the dwarven clan, Brunner, who had adopted her as his own a dozen years before when a goblin raid had left her orphaned. This could prove a valuable meeting, and Trieri mused. He cocked an ear through the banister poles to hear the discussion below. "'He's been gone but a week,' Caterbury argued. "'A week with no word,' snapped Cassius, obviously upset. "'With my beautiful house empty and unguarded. "'Why, the front door was unlocked when I came by a few days ago.' "'You gave the house to Regis,' Caterbury reminded the man. "'Loaned,' Cassius roared though in truth the house had indeed been a gift. The spokesman had quickly regretted turning over to Regis the key to his palace, the grandest house north of Mirabar. In retrospect, Cassius understood that he'd been caught up in the fervor of that tremendous victory over the goblins, and he suspected that Regis had lifted his emotions even a step further by using the reputed hypnotic powers of the ruby pendant. Like others who'd been duped by the persuasive halfling, Cassius had come to a very different perspective on the events that had transpired, a perspective that painted Regis unfavorably. No matter the name you call it, Caterbury conceded, you should not be so hasty to decide that Regis has forsaken the house. The spokesman's face reddened in fury. Everything out today, he demanded. You have my list. I want all the halfling's belongings out of my house. 
any that remain when I return tomorrow shall become my own by the rights of possession. And I warn you, I shall be compensated dearly if any of my property is missing or damaged. He turned on his heel and stormed out the doors. He's got his hair up about this one, chuckled Fender Mallet, one of the dwarves. Never have I seen one whose friends swing from loyalty to hatred more than Regis. Caterbury nodded in agreement of Fender's observations. She knew that Regis played with magical charms, and she figured that his paradoxical relationships with those around him were an unfortunate side effect of his dabblings. Do you suppose he's off with Drizzt and Bruner? Fender asked. Up the stairs, and Trary shifted anxiously. Not to doubt, Caterbury answered. All winter they've been asking him to join in the quest for Mithril Hall, and to be sure, Wolfgar's joining added to the pressure. Then the little one's halfway to Luskin or more, reasoned Fender, and Cassius is right in wanting his house back. Then let us get to packing, said Caterbury. Cassius has enough of his own without adding to the hoard from Regis's goods. And Trevi leaned back against the banister. The name of Mithril Hall was unknown to him, but he knew the way to Luskin well enough. He grinned again, wondering if he might catch them before they even reached the port city. First, though, he knew that there still might be some valuable information to be garnered here. Caterbury and the dwarves set about the task of collecting the halfling's belongings, and as they moved from room to room, the black shadow of Artemis and Treri, as silent as death, hovered about them. They never suspected his presence, never would have guessed that the gentle ripple in the drapes was anything more than a draft flowing in from the edges of the window, or that the shadow behind a chair was disproportionately long. He managed to stay close enough to hear nearly all of their conversation— and Caterbury and the dwarves spoke of little else than the four adventurers and their journey to Mithril Hall. But Entreri learned little for his efforts. He already knew of the halfling's famed companions. Everyone in Ten Towns spoke of them often, of Drizduarden, the renegade drow elf who had forsaken his dark-skinned people in the bowels of the realms and roamed the borders of Ten Towns as a solitary guardian against the intrusions of the wilderness of Icewind Dale, of Brunner Battlehammer, the rowdy leader of the dwarven clan that lived in the valley near Kelvin's Karn, and, most of all, of Wolfgar, the mighty barbarian, who was captured and raised to adulthood by Brunner, returned with the savage tribes of the Dale to defend ten towns against the Goblin army, then struck up a truce between all the peoples of Icewind Dale, a bargain that had salvaged and promised to enrich the lives of all involved. It seems you have surrounded yourself with formidable allies, Halfling, Entreri mused, leaning against the back of a large chair as Caterbury and the dwarves moved into an adjoining room. Little help they will offer. You are mine. Caterbury and the dwarves worked for about an hour, filling two large sacks, primarily with clothes. Caterbury was astounded with the stock of possessions Regis had collected since his reputed heroics against Kessel and the goblins, mostly gifts from grateful citizens. Well aware of the halfling's love of comfort, she could not understand what had possessed him to run off down the road after the others, but what truly amazed her was that Regis hadn't hired porters to bring along at least a few of his belongings, and the more of his treasures that she discovered as she moved through the palace— the more this whole scenario of haste and impulse bothered her. 
It was too out of character of Regis. There had to be another factor, some missing element that she hadn't yet weighed. Well, we got more than we can carry, and most of the stuff anyway, declared Fender, hoisting a sack over his sturdy shoulder. Leave the rest for Cassius to sort, I say. I would no give Cassius the pleasure of claiming any of these things, Caterbury retorted. There may yet be valued items to be found. Two of you take the sacks back to our rooms at the inn. I'll be finishing the work up here. Ah, you're too good to Cassius, Fender grumbled. Bruner had him marked right, as a man taking too much pleasure in counting what he owns. Be fair, Fender Mallet, Caterbury retorted, though her agreeing smile belied any harshness in her tone. Cassius served the towns well in the war and has been a fine leader for the people of Bryn Shander. You've seen as well as myself that Regis has a talent for putting up a cat's fur. Fender chuckled in agreement. For all his ways of getting what he wants, the little one has left a row or two of ruffled victims. He patted the other dwarf on the shoulder and they headed for the main door. Don't you be late, girl, Fender called back to Caterbury. Where to the mines again, tomorrow, no later. You fret too much, Fender Mallet, Caterbury said laughing. And Trary considered the last exchange and again a smile widened across his face. He knew well the wake of magical charms. The ruffled victims that Fender had spoken of described exactly the people that Pasha Pook had duped back in Calumport, people charmed by the ruby pendant. The double doors closed with a bang. Caterbury was alone in the big house, or so she thought. She was still pondering Regis's uncharacteristic disappearance. Her continued suspicions that something was wrong, that some piece of the puzzle was missing, began to foster within her the sense that something was wrong here in the house as well. Caterbury suddenly became aware of every noise and shadow around her, the click-click of the pendulum clock, the rustle of the papers on a desk in front of the open window, the swish of drapes, the scutterings of a mouse within the wooden walls. Her eyes darted back on the drapes, still trembling slightly from the last movement. It could have been a draft through the crack in the window, but the alert woman suspected differently. Reflexively, dropping to a crouch and reaching for the dagger at her hip, she started toward the open doorway, a few feet to the side of the drapes. And Trary had moved quickly, suspecting that more could yet be learned from Caterbury and not willing to pass up the opportunity offered by the dwarves' departure, he'd slipped into the most favorable position for an attack, and now waited patiently atop the narrow perch of the open door, balanced as easily as a cat on a windowsill. He listened for her approach, his dagger turning over casually in his hand. Caterbury sensed the danger as soon as he reached the doorway and saw the black form dropping to her side, but as quick as her reactions were, her own dagger was not halfway from its sheath before the sin fingers of a cool hand had clamped over her mouth, stifling a cry, and the razored edge of a jeweled dagger had creased a light line in her throat. She was stunned and appalled. Never had she seen a man move so quickly, and the deadly precision of Entreri's strike unnerved her. A sudden tenseness in his muscles assured her that if she persisted in drawing her weapon— she would be dead long before she could use it. Releasing the hilt, she made no further move to resist. The assassin's strength also surprised her as he easily lifted her into a chair. He was a small man, slender as an elf and barely as tall as she, 
but every muscle on his compact frame was toned to its finest fighting edge. His very presence exuded an aura of strength and an unshakable confidence. This, too, unnerved Caterbury, because it wasn't the brash cockiness of an exuberant youngster, but the cool air of superiority of one who had seen a thousand fights and had never been bested. Caterbury's eyes never turned from Entreri's face as he quickly tied her to the chair. His angular features, striking cheekbones and strong jawline, were only sharpened by the straight cut of his raven-black hair. The shadow of beard that darkened his face appeared if no amount of shaving could ever lighten it up. Far from unkempt, though, everything about the man spoke of control. Caterbury might have even considered him handsome, except for his eyes. Their gray showed no sparkle, lifeless, devoid of any hint of compassion or humanity. They marked this man as an instrument of death and nothing more. "'What do you want of me?' Caterbury asked when she mustered the nerve. And Trerry answered with a stinging slap across her face. "'The ruby pendant,' he demanded suddenly. "'Does the halfling still wear the pendant?' Caterbury fought to stifle the tears welling in her eyes. She was disoriented and off-guard, and could not respond immediately to the man's question. The jeweled dagger flashed before her eyes and slowly traced the circumference of her face. "'I have not much time,' Entreri declared flatly. "'You will tell me what I need to know. The longer it takes you to answer, the more pain you will feel.' His words were calm and spoken with honesty. Caterbury, toughened under Brunner's own tutelage, found herself unnerved. She'd faced and defeated goblins before, even a horrid troll once. But this collected killer terrified her. She tried to respond, but her trembling jaw would not allow more words. The dagger flashed again. Regis wears it! Caterbury shrieked, a tear tracing a solitary line down each of her cheeks. And Trevi nodded and smiled slightly. He's with the Dark Elf and the Dwarf and the Barbarian, he said matter-of-factly. And they are on the road to Luskin, and from there to a place called Mithril Hall. Tell me of Mithril Hall, dear girl. He scraped the blade on his own cheek, its fine edge poignantly clearing a small patch of beard. Where does it lie? Canterbury realized that her inability to answer would probably spell her end. I, I, I know not, she stammered boldly, regaining a measure of the discipline that Brunner had taught her, though her eyes never left the glint of the deadly blade. A pity, Entreri replied. Such a pretty face. Please, Canterbury said as calmly as she could with the dagger moving toward her. Not a one knows, not even Brunner, to find it is his quest. The blade stopped suddenly, and Entreri turned his head to the side, eyes narrowed and all of his muscles taut and alert. Caterbury hadn't heard the turn of the door handle, but the deep voice of Fender Mallet echoing down the hallway explained the assassin's actions. Hey, where are you, girl? Caterbury tried to yell, run and her own life be damned. But Entreri's quick backhand dazed her and drove the word out as an indecipherable grunt. Her head lolling to the side, she just managed to focus her vision as Fender and Grollo, battle axes in hand, burst into the room. 
and Trary stood ready to meet them, jeweled dagger in one hand and a saber in the other. For an instant, Canterbury was filled with elation. The dwarves of Ten Towns were an iron-fisted battalion of hardened warriors, with Fender's prowess in battle among the clans second only to Bruner's. Then she remembered who they faced, and despite their apparent advantage, her hopes were washed away by the wave of undeniable conclusions. She had witnessed the blur of the assassin's movements, the uncanny precision of his cuts. Revulsion welling in her throat, she couldn't even gasp for the dwarves to flee. Even had they known the depths of the horror in the man standing before them, Fender and Grala would not have turned away. Outrage blinds a dwarven fighter from any regard for personal safety, and when these two saw their beloved Caterbury bound to the chair, their charge at Entreri became an instinct. Fueled by unbridled rage, their first attacks roared in with every ounce of strength they could call upon. Conversely, Entreri started slowly, finding a rhythm and allowing the sheer fluidity of his motions to build his momentum. At times, he seemed barely able to parry or dodge the ferocious swipes. Some missed their mark by barely an inch, and the near hits spurred Fender and Grollo even further. But even with her friends pressing the attack, Caterbury understood that they were in trouble. Entreri's hands seemed to talk to each other, so perfect were the complement of their movements as they positioned the jeweled dagger and saber. The synchronous shufflings of his feet kept them in complete balance throughout the melee. His was a dance of dodges, parries, and counter-slashes. His was a dance of death. Caterbury had seen this before, the telltale methods of the finest swordsman in all of Icewind Dale. The comparison to Drizduarden was inescapable. Their grace and movements were so alike, with every part of their bodies working in harmony. But they remained strikingly different, a polarity of morals that subtly altered the aura of the dance. The drow ranger in battle was an instrument of beauty to behold, a perfect athlete pursuing his chosen course of righteousness with unsurpassed fervor. But Entreri was merely horrifying, a passionless murderer callously disposing of obstacles in his path. The initial momentum of the dwarves' attack began to diminish now, and both Fender and Grollo wore a look of amazement that the floor was not yet red with their opponent's blood. But while their attacks were slowing, Uncherry's momentum continued to build. His blades were a blur, each thrust followed by two others that left the dwarves rocking back on their heels. Effortless, his movements. Endless, his energy. Fender and Grollo maintained a solely defensive posture, but even with all their efforts devoted to blocking, everyone in the room knew that it was only a matter of time before a killing blade slipped through. Caterbury didn't see the fatal cut, but she saw vividly the bright line of blood that appeared across Grollo's throat. The dwarf continued fighting for a few moments, oblivious to the cause of his inability to find his breath. Then, startled, Grollo dropped to his knees, grasping his throat, and gurgling in the blackness of death. Fury spurred Fender beyond his exhaustion, his axe chopped and cut wildly, screaming for revenge. And Trevi toyed with him, actually carrying the charade so far as to slap him on the side of the head with the flat of the saber. Outraged, insulted, and fully aware that he was overmatched, Fender launched himself into a final suicidal charge, hoping to bring the assassin down with him. And Trary sidestepped the desperate lunge with an amused laugh and ended the fight, driving the jeweled dagger deep into Fender's chest and following through with a skull-splitting slash of the saber as the dwarf stumbled by. 
Too horrified to cry, too horrified to scream, Catterbury watched blankly as Entreri retrieved the dagger from Fender's chest. Certain of her own impending death, she closed her eyes as the dagger came toward her, felt its metal, hot from the dwarf's blood, flat on her throat. And then the teasing scrape of its edge against her soft, vulnerable skin as Entreri slowly turned the blade over in his hand, tantalizing the promise, the dance of death. Then it was gone. Catterbury opened her eyes just as the small blade went back into its scabbard on the assassin's hip. He'd taken a step back from her. You see, he offered in simple explanation of his mercy. I kill only those who stand to oppose me. Perhaps then three of your friends on the road to Luskin shall escape the blade. I want only the halfling. Canterbury refused to yield to terror that he evoked. She held her voice steady and promised coldly, You underestimate them. They will fight you. With calm confidence, Entreri replied, Then they too shall die. Canterbury couldn't win in the contest of nerves with the dispassionate killer. Her only answer to him was her defiance. She spat at him, unafraid of the consequences. He retorted with a single stinging backhand, her eyes blurred in pain and welling tears, and Catterbury slumped into blackness. But as she fell unconscious, she heard a few seconds longer the cruel, passionless laughter fading away as the assassin moved from the house, tantalizing the promise of death. <laughs>